welcome to the Dr. Doom podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Doom. Um, this is going to be a short episode. I'm super tired. <laughs> Yesterday, I recorded an episode while I was on call, and I got called in, and then got called subsequently about 30 more times immediately after recording the episode. Um, the problem with uh, working in a small group or in a uh, specialty where you don't have other colleagues readily available to cover for you is that when you're on call and you're busy at night, you still have to work the next day and, and put in a full day's work. So I came home from work, um, today and I'm s- still covering, uh, an- another site this evening. And I just said, uh, to my wife, I said, Chrissy, I'm just going to put my feet up for 10 minutes <laughs> and I fell asleep for three hours. So, needless to say, when I woke up, I had a lot of work still to do, and uh, just finished it now. And so, this is, uh, you know, not going to be a great, na- a great episode, but it, I'll do the best I can. <laughs> I have a funny, this is kind of a funny story. Um, so, when when you're going through getting ready for medicine, you're really focused on learning the science of um, the pre-medicine. Basically, you, you learn. A lot of biology and biochemistry and that kind of thing and uh then you get into medicine and you spend a lot of your time learning anatomy and again physiology and uh, histology of all the different you know systems that you're going to someday be treating and uh and and then you have to learn all the pharmacokinetics of the drugs that go along with that and everything else so you spend a lot of time again delving into the science and then you do your residency and again it's all more science like with radiology you have to learn all the physics of radiology and then you have to learn all the standard views and then you have to learn all the anatomy how it looks radiographically and the pertinent anatomy to all the oncology and all the vascular disease and everything else and then you learn your differential diagnoses once you learn to find things you have to learn to describe them then you have to learn what they could be and then you have to learn how to treat them and what recommendations to make. So you spend basically, you know, 13, 14 years learning, um, learning all the science of medicine. And then you get out of the learning phase. You finish your board exams. You might do a fellowship where you do some more science, which is what I did. And then, and then you're out into the world of medicine and your job is, you know, 50% is that science. The other 50% is business and politics and surviving (laughs) and finance and all the stuff that nobody's ever prepared you for. All the things that you don't, I mean, you might have taken a passing interest in them and you might have some common sense that can help direct you, but um, I didn't. (laughs) I I, I understood you have to save money, like I understood that, but uh, I was never very good at, at politicking. I always kind of said, look, I, I'm not a no nonsense kind of guy. I'm, I'm a full nonsense kind of guy. When I'm in a social setting with other people, my inclination is to try and make them laugh. And it's not always appropriate, <laughs> at, especially at business meetings and stuff like that. So, um, you know, I, I have kind of in my career, I, I look at my job as just a job and, uh, for a while, I really tried to be involved in, uh, 
hospital and I wanted to help and I wanted to um, be an advocate for my specialty and and uh, so I sat on the you know on the uh, medical society's specialty council for years and years and eventually um, you know uh, the chief job used to come up about every five years when I started the chief of my group was this guy John who was just the nicest damn guy you'd ever meet like real great guy he just retired this year he's a good friend of mine um the next chief was another guy named John another wonderful guy he was a little more social social director kind of thing and we didn't get any major projects off the ground through no fault of his own but he was very good at um he knew all the other physicians he knew all the other departments he was good at building bridges and then he said he wanted to step down and i thought about oh should i do it i've been here a decade you know is it my turn and i in the end uh there's another fellow at work that i kind of butt heads with a bit and i thought this is gonna be a big headache and uh at the time there were no incentives to do it like there was no extra pay there was no extra time dedicated to it you basically just had to make time in your day to go to these meetings um when uh, other departments wanted something from your department or when people had complaints or whatever the hell it is and i just kind of thought it's it's not for me i just want to work i just want to get my job done i spend so much time working at my job that i just don't have time to do this extraneous bullshit in my opinion (laughs) and and i i figured i wasn't that good at it but um you know i I've, i've tried to help i've tried to help the guy who ended up doing it and I kind of get the feeling like, just nobody really listens to me. The guy who's uh, uh, who took the job is is younger than me. Started later than me, and and I always think like if I put myself in that situation, I would kind of listen to the people who have been here longer because they might have some, you know, experience that uh, gives a better perspective on how to approach problems. But this guy, I felt like, oh, he's not. Yeah, he's a good guy. He just doesn't really listen to me much. And then, you know, each subsection of the department has its own chief. And that guy's younger than me, too, for my subsection that I spend most of my time in. And I kind of got the sense, you know, he doesn't really listen to me. Like, this, he's not really listening. So I was kind of talking to one of my older colleagues because some of the things, some of the decisions they've made... I don't know, like most of them, actually, the guy in my subsection is very, very bright and probably a lot brighter than me, so it's for the best, but but some of the decisions, you know, you always wonder, did we really optimize what we could have done here, or are we doing this in the best interest of our group, or our specialty, uh, or our patients, or the patients of the future, like, are we building, or are we stagnating, kind of thing, that's that's sort of the, the way I look at, at the job as a whole. And, uh, you know, I just started feeling a little bit guilty. It's not that I don't like these guys. They're great guys. But I felt like, look, I had more experience. I'd been here longer. I'm not a stupid guy. Uh, well, I maybe I am. Maybe, but, you know, the thought I was having is, ah, should I have fucking stepped up and done the, you know, volunteered to take on the chief position? Because since that's happened, since since they've had the chief come in, there's now like a day a week dedicated to doing chiefly jobs. Now I would have cut that back. <laughs> That's just me. I would have told people I don't have a lot of time. 
So, you know, we're going to squeeze in a meeting. I've got a day month. <laughs> <laughs> that's, and that's what I would do. And then if there was a big project like, hey, we're, we're going to potentially need a new CT scanner or something, then I would ask the group to graciously give me the time to deal with that. Um, but, uh, you know, this, and that's not a criticism of the dude who's doing it. It's just the way it is. But, uh, but I, I start feeling guilty because some things like I felt like I, I bet I could have gotten that done or I bet I could have done this better. And, and these guys don't listen to me maybe because I've never stepped up and like done this duty is this, this duty that they don't want to do. So I was working a couple of, uh, months ago, I was working at our, uh, you know, our small inner city hospital with, um, one of my senior colleagues who is, uh, just on the retirement path this year. And he and I are quite good friends. So I, I was really good friends with, uh, two of the older guys in the group. And we used to have coffee every day and hang out. Now one of them's retired and one of them's retiring. And I'm a little bit depressed about it, to be honest. But, uh, you know, we were sitting, we, we had a little break um, from work. The PAX system was down, so we couldn't report any films. So we just started chatting and he's he's very into investing and stuff. So he was kind of giving me some financial advice. And, and he said, you know, I don't, I don't understand why... The group isn't actively pursuing getting this, you know, n new pet scanner. Like our, our pet scanner is 15 years old. They've talked about replacing, you know, equipment in the province and, and nothing's being done. And, and that was kind of a pet piece of mine too, pun intended. Um, it's, it's since been sorted. So, uh, well, or unsorted once again, but at least it's been addressed, but I was kind of, in the same boat and I said Mike you know I feel so guilty I said I you know when that job came up for chief my dad had cancer and um you know I just didn't feel like I didn't feel like I could do it but now I'm really regretting not stepping up and volunteering to do it because I, I think like my experience would have would have helped us kind of move the profession forward and move the group forward and he held up his hand he said no 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 I'm gonna stop you there you can't do it. I said, why not? He said, you're not likable. I said, what? He said, you're not likable. Nobody likes you. You, you didn't know that? I said, no, they don't? <laughs> no, I'm surprised you didn't know that. <laughs> I said, it's not the job for you. You need somebody who's likable in that job. Oh, so for the last, like, I don't know, that was actually probably a year ago now. So ever since, I've every day when I go to work, I, I, I think, I'm going to a job where nobody likes me. <laughs> I, I thought it was likable. I thought it was funny. I guess I'm, I'm not, you know, not that funny. <laughs> anyway, so that's me, Mr. Unlikable. I'd just tell a second very short story about some of the weird things I did in 2020 when the pandemic started. So um, <laughs> my dad passed away in late 2019 or 2018. So in December of 2018. And um, 2019 was a blur of grief and, um, and trying to get back into work and stuff. And I, I tried to, you know, dad didn't want us to wallow in grief. So I tried to rebound as hard as I could. I tried. Um, but I, 
you know, it's like reestablishing your relationship with your mother too, because she goes from being a person that you depended on to a person that is also now depending on you. I still depend on mom, but you know, that's just emotionally. And she depends on me for all the practical stuff that my dad used to do. Like I, you know, or she, she's kind of got it figured out now, but she didn't even know how to log into their online banking. So <laughs> like I spent six months trying to organize her life so it would reflect mine so that we would have a common um, sort of technical approach to finance and and everything else so that we could get through it, you know. Um, so 2019 was not an easy year. She was in, she's still quite grief stricken, but not, you know, not wallowing in it anymore, but still, still has a lot of trouble with it. And, um, and so 2019, we did have a vacation in, um, in March, like four or five months after dad died. And we brought mom down to Florida and it was two weeks. God, it was wonderful. It was like the best fucking vacation I've ever had. <laughs> it was so great. Uh, because, and, and it's not, I I'd been down with dad and those were better vacations to be honest, but it was just like for the first time feeling happy after being sad for three years while well, he was diagnosed in 2017. So this was two years, I guess, but just being so sad for two years with no hope or anything and just allowing yourself to take a break from that. So fucking amazing. It was just the best feeling in the world. But then, um, you know, we got back to real life when we came back and, and got through the rest of that year, a very difficult year, but we really looked forward. We booked to go down again the next March when Jack was on his March break, which was of course, March, 2020. So we, I had heard, I'd heard about the virus in China and, um, and we were getting, we were going to Bangor to fly down to uh, Florida and Justin Trudeau was on the news saying the real, what did, what was the quote? It was, you know, he was at peak wokesterism and, and I apologize if you're a left leaning listener, that's, uh, I'm trying not to judge, <laughs> but you know, he's, he's just an irritating man. Uh, he's not a good spokesperson for, for your movement, <laughs> but, uh, he said the, the real threat, um, to our health is racism. And he was doing photo ops at like these Asian restaurants to show like, I, you know, I still love our Chinese friends. And I was like, no one's mad at, nobody cares if you're Chinese or not. You gotta, you gotta like, you know, figure out what you're going to (laughs) do to prevent this pandemic from starting, which nobody did anything. And, and as we were getting on the plane, that's, that came up on the news on my phone that he said that the real threat is racism. And I thought this is going to be out of control within weeks. Um, so I had brought like masks and gloves and I just thought just on a whim, I kind of thought, I bet they'll make us wear masks on the plane to get home. And I don't want to have to go find them because I bet people will be panic buying them. And that was all I kind of thought about it. I didn't really think any further than that. I just figured, Oh, I'd booked three weeks off. We pulled Jack out of school for two weeks and his March break. And I thought, well, we'll just have a great vacation and everything will be fine. (laughs) It'll all come out in the wash. We got down there and the first week was not bad. Um, 
you know, we, I, I read, I still read the Tampa Bay Times. And I think it was on like day five, they reported that there was a case in Tampa. And then I was watching the news at home and they were like, there were cases in Toronto and they were still bringing in flights from Wuhan and they weren't asking people to quarantine. And they were, there were cases in Vancouver and then cases in Montreal. And it was like SARS all over again. Like I was in a, a medical student during the SARS outbreak. And, um, and I kind of thought they're, they don't seem to be doing anything at all to get things under control. And Trudeau was still talking about the climate change and he was going to Iran to make friends in Iran and try and get a seat on the UN Security Council and I thought oh this is going this is going to be a massive global pandemic <laughs> there's there's no voice of common sense here at, at least not in our country and the United States at the time was um you know Trump was president and I I, I don't have strong feelings either way about Trump. Just, you know, I'm not going to get into my own personal politics. But I did not think he would be, like, good at managing the pandemic. I, and I, you know, I'm sorry. That's, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't actually dislike the guy. I, I don't lean one way or the other, really, on, on, on these things. Um, but, you know, he's, he's, not a, he's not a perfect character. <laughs> As a physician, I kind of looked at that and thought, oh, this is... They're not doing anything. Uh, uh-oh. <laughs> so, um, so let's hope they come up with a vaccine. <laughs> so it started creeping up on us. And then and then it started hitting the news cycle. And like, I think the prime minister was still in Iran. And the, um, oh, I don't even remember what her role was. Uh, Patty Hadju. I think she was the chief of health or something for the country said told everyone stock up on groceries like that they were going to start doing a lockdown and and people went into absolute panic and i remember all the toilet paper just disappearing from the grocery stores and i was in um <laughs> we were in florida and flights like we weren't sure if flights were going to happen and this was our relaxing vacation post losing dad and and this was our like get the family back together and i was there with mom and uh, chrissy and i just fell into this bout of extreme self-pity <laughs> it's like i tried so hard for for my father for the two years while he suffered i i tried to be there every moment for him at great expense to my personal health and and happiness and and i needed this vacation so badly and now they're telling people to panic buy their groceries and we're stuck in florida and i don't know what the fuck is going to happen and i, I remember just sitting on the bed and i just started crying <laughs> like a child <laughs> i just wept not because i was particular i was you know i was scared of the virus but i wasn't it wasn't that that I was crying for. I was crying for myself, <laughs> for my own. I was just, I felt so sorry for myself. It was really quite pitiful. Anyway, I did, I did get my shit together. Um, we had to abandon our vacation because they told us they were closing the Canadian border and to come home. <laughs> and that was like, you have 24 hours. So I was on, everybody was scrambling to get flights much like, much like today for different reasons. Uh, you couldn't get through 
to anyone at the airport. You couldn't get through to anyone at Allegiant Air. Um, I finally got through after three days after they after we thought they were supposed to close the border. And the, these were like full days on hold on the phone. I'd, I'd like walk the beach on hold. I'd go fishing on hold. <laughs> I did everything because I was like, I'm not going to get back to Florida. So I might as well do absolutely everything I can while I'm here. But while doing that, I had to be on hold. Anyway, finally, somebody answered the phone. Like I, I'd get disconnected over and over again. Somebody answered and uh, we did uh, amazingly manage to get our flights changed. So we flew back to Bangor, um, lost the cost of the initial flights, had to buy round trip flights were the only ways I could buy the flight. So, you know, lost another thousand or so dollars. Um, but we got home and uh, got across the border before they closed it. And then I was put into quarantine because I'd been away. And at the same time, the stock market had crashed. I don't know, uh, you know, if, if you remember that time. <laughs> so my life savings, I lost like, oh, almost 45% of my life savings in a week. It just absolutely disappeared. I didn't, amazingly, I didn't sell a lot. I sold a little bit on my retail investing platform, but I was, in my mind, I was thinking, well, if it's like SARS, we'll get it under control eventually, you know, because at least people are paying attention now. Little did I know. Um, but, uh, you know, the stock market crash and everything. And so I was not in a financial position to um, be able to handle any of this. And then we got our first biweekly paycheck after they canceled every elective case in the hospital and basically shut us down and said, you can only do emergencies. And nobody was like it was crazy they made fun of all the nurses for doing the tiktok videos of them dancing and stuff i remember seeing them and being like guys this is so dumb please don't do this <laughs> but but you know they're trying to keep their morale high i guess but uh but they could do that because every hospital canceled every elective case there was not it was crazy there and and all the imaging like all those people that we would normally we probably diagnose five or six people with cancer every day none of them were getting their scans done um, the only scans were for emergencies and a paycheck came through and it was like for two weeks, it was in, it was like less than a thousand dollars. And I thought, I'm, I'm going to lose my house. If the stock market keeps crashing. It was crazy. And I felt very sorry for myself. As I've said, I tried, I was trying to pull myself together, but I decided, you know what? I'm going to start bulk buying, um, treats because I, I had to go you know, after my quarantine, I had to go back to the hospital. We had no idea if this thing was universally fatal. Like it was still those early days where we didn't know if it was Ebola we were dealing with or what. And, uh, so I, uh, I bought giant crates of sun chips, <laughs> of harvest cheddar sun chips. And every day I would eat a bag of sun chips. And I'm, if you know, I've, I had been conscientious about my weight and I'd actually got my weight down. And I just, uh, man, I never pumped the brakes for like three months. I, I ate sun chips. I bought all the um, scotches from Isla, like all the really smoky scotches. And, you know, we weren't working a week out of every two weeks. There was no point. So they just scheduled us off. So every second week I would do scotch sampling, you know, and, and we were locked down. You weren't even allowed to go for a walk. So I would, um, do scotch sampling, uh, starting at noon <laughs> and then I'd 
go to bed for the night at 3.30 in the afternoon. <laughs> it's the worst, most unhealthy period of my entire existence. It was that combination of self-pity, sun chips, and scotch. And, uh, and, and eventually, you know, as, as everyone knows, things got a little bit better. We got into the summer months and, um, we'd only had a few cases where I live they'd kind of locked down quite hard. And, um, we were worried about businesses going out of business and stuff, but eventually, you know, sick people were presenting to the hospital and, and we kind of talked them into, you need to start scanning. Like you need to start imaging people or like we're already a year behind. We can't catch up. There's only a few machines and, and we can't book people. And, and so they saw the light and we started working again and things got better. And then the second half of 2020 wasn't all that bad. It was, uh, you know, things were kind of on the improve <laughs> and then a new variant came out, but then the vaccines came out and that, that was good. And the market recovered and things were kind of on the up and up. So, you know, I did, I did get my shit together after a while, but there was that period. Oh, the the thing I wanted, the thing that was funny that I wanted to talk about was the fact, the toilet paper issue, because we didn't, I couldn't get my hands on toilet paper in Canada. It had all, I, there must be, there must be people whose garages are still to this day full of toilet paper. Like they must've bought 20,000 rolls of toilet paper because there was not a roll of toilet paper to be had. And I would even go to the hospital to go to the bathroom. <laughs> We didn't have any in the house. Now, what I did, you couldn't get Kleenex either. I thought of that, so don't even suggest it. Uh, what I did find, though, that other people hadn't thought of was Preparation H medicated uh, wipes for people with hemorrhoids. I was like, fuck it, I'll, I'll buy these. So we, we our family had... Um, two packages of preparation H medicated wipes to get us through. Um, Oh, it was probably two weeks before we found a, a, you know, package of toilet paper. You couldn't get them on Amazon. And I called my brother in, uh, he was in Australia and I said, what are you doing about toilet paper? Do you have any, you can send us literally asking him to mail us toilet paper. And he said, no, I had to buy two industrial rolls of toilet paper. They're gigantic like single ply rolls and they're supposed to be mounted on a machine but i just use my finger and the thing weighs about four pounds <laughs> so <laughs> both of us had come up with alternate solutions anyway i don't even remember what the first half of this podcast was about but uh thanks for listening thanks for telling a friend uh stay healthy stay classy and we'll see you next time mm-hmm.